like to pray for us. I'd like to pray for uh, our country, pray for the church in light of the elections on Tuesday. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this country in which we live. We're thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy, especially as followers of Christ. Thank you for the freedom to worship without fear. Thank you for the freedom to share the gospel, to talk about the hope within us. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to vote. We have the opportunity to influence the direction of our country. Uh, Indeed, God, we're blessed to live in the United States. And Father, our country is deeply divided in many ways. This division is very evident in this election cycle, even within the church. And so we pray that the elections would take place peacefully on Tuesday. We pray that we would have results quickly. We pray that there would not be unrest or violence after the elections take place. And we pray for ourselves, Father, as Jesus' disciples. We ask that each one of us might be prayerful about our votes. We want you to lead us in our voting. We pray that each of us might be full of faith and not fear as we think about this election, as we vote, as we process the results. And Lord, like all elections, this one will be consequential, and so we pray that your will would be done. We believe that you are sovereign over the nations, including the United States of America. Teach us to trust in you alone. Teach us to be still and know that you are God. And we take great joy in the assurance that you will be exalted among the nations. Father, our ultimate well-being in this life and in eternity depends on you, not on governments, not on other humans. And Father, along with believers across this country, we pray that you would shape the heart of our next president so that righteousness would be what he desires and sin would be what he disdains. We pray for ourselves here at Faith, and we pray for the body of Christ across this country. We ask for the grace to put aside divisive words and actions. We pray that those who will rejoice over the election results will do so with humility, with compassion. We pray that those who will be disappointed or even distraught over the election results will lament, and yet with hope and with faith. God, may the body of Christ keep in step with the Spirit so that we might exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. God, these are the things that we want. We believe these are the things that you want. And so we pray in faith. We pray in faith, God. And we pray that the scriptures that we will consider this morning would nourish our souls and shape our lives. And so we look to you now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we've asked Kelsey McFadden to come and read scripture as she comes forward. Would you please stand with me wherever you are? Please stand as we hear the word. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. We have come in our six-week study of Psalm 23 to verse 5. Now, this is a verse that speaks about the lavish hospitality of God. Again, listen to what David says in Psalm 23, 5. He's speaking to the Lord here. He says, you, Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Commentators are divided on whether or not David has moved on from the shepherd and the sheep imagery. Uh, Some understand that he's referring to David as a shepherd who prepares a pasture for grazing by uh, uh, taking out noxious or poisonous plants, that type of thing. Uh, Most commentators, and my, my understanding is that he has moved from the shepherd and the sheep imagery, and now he's viewing God as a host, the most generous of hosts who welcomes David into his home in the most gracious way. And so my comments today will reflect that understanding. In either way, either understanding, uh, this verse is about the lavish hospitality that God shows to every person who will receive it, his lavish hospitality. And I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear the word hospitality, if it's a strong, rich image, or whether it's sort of a weak idea. But for David, he tells us that through God's lavish hospitality, we experience abundance, we experience safety, and we experience acceptance. And so when David says to the Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, it's as if David is sitting down to a table He's enjoying this this lavish feast, and yet his enemies are watching. And so God hasn't destroyed his enemies yet, but they're not a threat. Uh, David experienced abundance and safety in the presence of his enemies. And this is consistent with what we saw last week in verse 4. There David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even even though I go through dark, dangerous paths... I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So we talked about last week, this rod was like a club. It was a weapon that a shepherd would use against predators. And so there he said, so David is saying, you prepare this table before me, even though I have enemies nearby, I don't fear, I am safe, because you have a rod and you're willing to use it. And so David was safe even in the presence of his enemies. I want us to take some, thought, some time, and I want you to stick with me on this. I want us to think about what it meant for David to have enemies and what it means for us to have enemies. Because if we don't understand this, we won't get the richness of what David is saying. We certainly won't be able to say with confidence, Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
And so if you read the first book of the Psalms, Psalms is divided, divided into these five books. And the first book of Psalms is, is chapter 1 through 41. And they were, they were written almost mostly, almost exclusively by David. And if you read those Psalms straight through, you will see a couple of dozen references David makes to his enemies. David has enemies. And the whole context is set up in chapters 1 and 2. And there God says, the person is blessed who uh, meditates on God's word and who bows the knee to his king, his son, his anointed one who's on the throne. But what we learn in chapter 2 is that there are people and there are nations that rage against the Lord and against his anointed king who sits on the throne in Zion. So from the beginning of Psalms, God has enemies. His king has enemies. And we know that ultimately this king who's sitting on the throne of God in Zion is, is Jesus himself. He's the one who will reign eternally. But in the Psalms, David is the king who is sitting on the throne. And so, uh, because of this identification between God and between God's king, David's enemies are God's enemies. And so, not surprisingly, when you read the Psalms and David is talking about his enemies, sometimes he will mention, God, by the way, these are your enemies too. A striking example is found in chapter 5, verse 10. After David lists some of the ways that his enemies had mistreated him, David writes this, He says, God, hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. And so David said, they don't just rebel against me as the king. They rebel against you, God. And so, of course, David wasn't sinless, far from it. But his enemies, by and large, were God's enemies also. So how does this apply to us? Well, first, we need to make sure that we have the right enemies, okay? You can have the wrong enemies, and this verse won't apply to you at all. Thank God for water. And so like David, we need to be like David. We We need to so side with God and with his anointed king, Jesus, that uh, if we have enemies, it's because of that association. And so if we have enemies because we've been arrogant or we've been unkind or just because we've got some random disagreement over some issue, then uh, we, we won't have the confidence David had. We won't be able to say the way David did, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We won't expect, we won't be able to expect the type of safety and abundance that David did. But Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 11. He said this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And so Jesus says this. He says, if you have enemies, if there are people that hate you and persecute you and slander you because of your association with with him, he says you're blessed. The the favor of God rests upon you. You are secure. You're going to experience abundance even if people are are upset with you or hate you. You may have heard of the account of uh, uh, during the Civil War, someone asked President Lincoln, they said, Mr. President, uh, do you believe that God is on our side? 
And Lincoln's response was, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And so if you have, you have enemies because you have sided with God, you have bowed the knee to Jesus, if you are following him, you are denying yourself, taking up your cross daily and following him, then you can have great safety. You can have great security. You can even have abundance when, you're, when your enemies are still nearby. You can say with David, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And second, so we need to make sure we have the right kind of enemies. Second, we need to make sure that we're treating our enemies the way Jesus instructed. Uh, in the New Testament, we see a radical shift in the way people are, are to think about, or Christians are supposed to think about and relate to our enemies. And uh, in the New Testament, you find this shift, and it's very striking. You see what David said about his enemies? Uh, that's, not, that's not what Jesus advocates and by and large, and this is a gross oversimplification, but the promise of protection from the old covenant to the new covenant, it moves from physical and earthly to spiritual and eternal. In the old covenant, God promised physical protection in this life, in this, this day. You move to the New Testament, and the, the protection, the blessing we're promised is spiritual, and it's eternal. It doesn't mean that it's watered down. It doesn't mean he never, he never protects us in this life. But the real promise is spiritual and eternal, which in the worldview of the Bible is much more significant. But the New Testament affirms what is taught throughout the Old Testament, namely that we all start out as enemies of God. We are sinful by nature and we are sinful by choice. We're born in sin, and we confirm that in the way we live our lives. But wonder of wonders, Paul tells us this in Romans 5. He said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And so the mission of Jesus was to turn God's enemies into his friends, to turn his enemies into his children. Jesus experienced the wrath of God on the cross so that we don't have to. And what he experienced on the cross was at least as severe as what a person would experience in hell. And so this is no small thing. And, and Paul never forgot that he had been an enemy of God. I think that's why he lived the, his life the way he did. He never forgot, I was an enemy of God, and yet Jesus died for me. You read about it in Acts 9. Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to persecute Christians. And God, being the good shepherd he was, Jesus being the good shepherd, he, he went after this lost sheep. He confronted Paul. He threw him to the ground. And finally, he opened his eyes, and Paul saw Jesus. He understood the gospel. Consequently, uh, he, he never forgot that he was when he was God's enemy, Christ died for him. And immediately he renounced the arrogance that he had as a Pharisee toward people who were far away from God. He quit trashing them. He quit condemning them. His, he spent the rest of his life telling them that even though you're an enemy of God, like I was, you can be reconciled to God through Jesus. And so... 
He spent the rest of his life doing that. And I've noticed in our day that people who live with this remembrance, they know I was an enemy of God and yet Christ died for me. They share the gospel with a type of passion and a type of conviction that you don't see in other people. People that, that come to, to God and think, I'm a five-star recruit. God, you are pretty fortunate to have me on your team. If they share the gospel, they share it in a cold, clinical way. Here's some information you might consider. But people that know, I was an enemy of God, they appeal to you. You can experience the same thing I've experienced. Because Paul was so passionate about the gospel, he had enemies, people who hated him and his Lord, Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, because of the lavish hospitality of God, he experienced abundance and he experienced security. He was safe, not physically, far from it, but he was safe in the ways that really matter. Read the book of Acts. You see it all over. Acts 16 is one of my favorite. Paul and Silas had gone to uh, Philippi, and because they, they were preaching Christ, uh, they were beaten publicly and they were thrown in prison. Midnight, what are they doing? They are praying and singing hymns in the presence of their enemies. They're singing there, and the guards, you know, are, are right there. There's the earthquake, the, the uh, doors are open, the guard was about to commit suicide because he thought the prisoner had escaped. And what did Paul do? He loved his enemy. He led him to Christ and his whole household. And so because Paul never forgot that he had been an enemy of God, he was able to live out Jesus' instruction on how we should treat our enemies. Matthew 5, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And so if you love that, if you love your enemy, you'll show the family resemblance and people will notice, oh, you're like God because God loves his enemies. How do we know that? Because when God took on flesh and blood, he loved his enemies by, by dying on the cross for their sins the excruciating, humiliating death on a cross. And hanging on the cross, what did he do? He prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. If they did, they would never crucify the Lord of glory. And so unless you're convinced that you were an enemy of God, if you've not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, unless you're convinced that you are an enemy of God, who deserves his wrath, you will never understand or accept what Jesus taught about loving your enemies. It won't make sense to you. It will be unreasonable, in your, your case anyway, maybe for others, but it will be unreasonable. It might even be irresponsible. You will view it as dangerous. This is a, just not a safe way to live your life. But if you do understand, I was an enemy when Christ died for me, Hard as it is, it will make sense. The New Testament ethic is that we treat others the way God in Christ has treated us. And so we need to make sure we've got the right kind of enemies and that we're treating our enemies the way Jesus taught. And if so, we can say with, with David, God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I experience abundance and safety. Let's think quickly about the last two lines of, of verse 20, uh, Psalm 23, 5. He says, you have anointed my head with oil. 
And that's a reference to a, a tradition that was well established in that day. If a host wanted to welcome you into their home, they would anoint your head with oil. It would be, a, I understand, a, a modest amount of oil would be put on your head. It was probably perfumed olive oil. And that was a, a, a sign you're an honored guest in this home. You may remember the account in Luke 7. This is a, a negative example of what David described but Jesus accepted an invitation to, uh, to have dinner in the house of a Pharisee. And so he ate with, with everybody. He, he, didn't, he didn't discriminate at all in that way. But while he was there, there was a woman who had this, this label, sinner. She came in, and she fell down at his feet, and she was weeping on his feet. And my hair's not long enough, but those of you with long hair, can you imagine taking your hair and wiping dirty feet with your hair? And then this woman anointed his feet with oil. And uh, this Pharisee, he, he thought, he said, this Jesus, he's not a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would never let that woman touch him the way she is. And Jesus told a parable that, that basically pointed out, no, those that love much, that she love, loves much because she's been forgiven much. And Jesus turned to Simon, this Pharisee, and said this, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. By not, by not anointing his head with oil, this Pharisee was saying to Jesus, you're on probation. You're in my house, but I'm not accepting you. I'm not, I'm not accepting you as a friend and as an, as an honored guest. Now, back in Psalm 23, 5, when David says to God, you have anointed my head with oil, he's saying, God, I'm not on probation here. You welcomed me into your household. You said, you are, my, you are my honored guest. He's saying to God, God, you made me feel accepted and welcome. I'm not only safe, I not only have abundance, but I am accepted in your household. Have you received Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ? You're not on probation. You are not on probation. You say, well, if you knew my behavior. Your acceptance is not conditional on your behavior. When you are God's enemy, Christ died for you. You are accepted because God is a gracious host. In the last line of verse 5, David says, My cup overflows. I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant, but you have a server that is so attentive to you. It's like you'll take, you'll take a drink and you will... Oh, I'm going to do that. You take a drink, you set your cup down, you look over here and you, your cup is full again. David, he says, that's what God is like. He not only refills my cup, it is overflowing. It's abundance. It's God lavishes his grace upon him. And so David was not an unwelcome guest at the Lord's table. This is a picture of the abundance, the over-the-top hospitality that God showed to David. David felt accepted. David felt wanted in the house of God. And so again, you put it together, and David's telling us that through God's lavish hospitality, we experience abundance, we experience safety, and we experience acceptance. This is the type of hospitality that Jesus shows every person who believes in him. 
okay? There aren't any strata, there aren't, there's no hierarchy in the, when it comes to God's acceptance. If you're in Christ, this is the way God treats you. We talked about Psalm, or we talked about Luke uh, 15 a couple of times already uh, in our, our series on Psalm 23, and uh, I just, I have to talk about it again today very briefly, because what Jesus says and does in, in Luke 15 embodies what we've been talking about in Psalm 23, 5. And so just as the Lord prepared a table for David in the presence of his enemies, Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners in the presence of their enemies, the Pharisees. Consequently, the tax collectors and sinners, they felt hospitality. They felt welcomed. They felt acceptance. They felt safe in the presence of Jesus. Now, what did the father do in the parable of the prodigal son? When his son came home, his younger son came home, what did he do? He prepared, he said, go prepare this feast for my son. And this younger brother, he dined, he had this lavish feast in the presence of his enemy, which was the older brother and probably the whole town. I mean, they were outraged. We would have been outraged that the father hadn't punished this son, but had lavished his hospitality upon him. And so the younger son, he had to feel welcomed and wanted by the father because of the robe and the ring and the fatted calf. And so here we are today, and in light of everything we've talked about, it's my privilege to welcome you to the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table today. I saw something this week. I've never, I've never noticed this, but in his book, Kenneth Bailey made this profound connection I'd never seen. I've read these passages many, many times, but he points out that, that when Paul thinks about Psalm 23, 5, for Paul, that verse finds its fullest expression in the Eucharist. At the, at the, in communion, at the Lord's table. And so when Paul talks about the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 10, he's confronting the, the Corinthians because they celebrated the Lord's table and they participated in these pagan feasts where they, they uh, worshiped idols. And Paul's understanding is that there were demons, there were demonic, de demonic beings behind those idols. And so Corinth is like America. It was like a spiritual food court. So you can eat at Jesus' table. You can eat at Aphrodite's table. You can eat at Poseidon's table. Just take a little of everything. Just be a spiritual person. Paul says, no. If you come to the Lord's table, it's so sufficient it is enough. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? You really want to poke God in the eye? There's this appropriate jealousy when we, we basically cheat on him, when we're not loyal to him exclusively. Our relationship with God is an exclusive relationship. We're to have, not to have him as one of the gods we worship. He is to be our one and only God. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that the Lord's table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we rehearse the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus at the Lord's table. And so at the Lord's table, the lavish hospitality of God is on full display. We have this feast today. 
because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you're able to say with David, you're able to say it today, Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup, well, it overflows. It's this, this unending it's unending thirst quenching satisfaction. So because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we experience abundance. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it in abundance. We experience safety. You know the safest place, safest place in the universe? Being raised up and seated with Christ at God's right hand. And we have acceptance. If you are if you're a follower of Christ, you are in Christ. And you are just as alive to God, just as accepted by God as Jesus himself. And so we're gonna, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. What's God stirring up in your heart? How, how do you want to worship God? And so I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to uh, just meditate. Bring your heart before God. Be honest before God. And then we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. Would you pray with me? God, as we come to the Lord's table... God, may we never disparage, may we never think poorly or lightly or think that you've done something insignificant through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, God, we feast today because of the body and blood of Christ, because his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. So, God, fill our minds, fill our hearts with this, this understanding of this lavish hospitality that we have because of Christ.